Today on Government Matters, full speed ahead on vaccines at the Department of Veterans Affairs. The doctor in charge reviews the process and prognosis. The post-COVID workforce gets a digital shot in the arm. A new playbook holds a roadmap for securing your digital workforce of tomorrow. And the number one story of the week, a government IT cash infusion disappears. Two former federal CIOs tell you where to look for more money. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Department of Veterans Affairs says it's administered more coronavirus vaccine doses than 42 states and the District of Columbia. The agency has more than 215 vaccine sites across the country. Dr. Jane Kim is chief consultant for preventative medicine at the Department of Veterans Affairs. She's leading the vaccine rollout across the VA. Dr. Kim, welcome. It's good to have you on the program. Where is VA on vac uh, vaccination distribution right now? How many shots have you given out? How many doses, et cetera? Yeah, thank you for having me. <clears throat> so the VA has passed a major milestone this week in vaccinating more than 1 million people with a COVID vaccine. Now, many of those people are on their way um, to having the second dose. Many have already received the second dose, but we are just thrilled that we've been able to vaccinate so many of our staff and veterans. Um, out of those, uh, about a quarter of them are um, our staff, uh, frontline providers providing care in our hospitals and clinics. Um, just passed over uh, 250,000 of our um, healthcare providers and essential staff being vaccinated with at least one dose of vaccine. So that is a great milestone as well. How did you establish the categories of priorities of who to vaccinate first, who to vaccinate next, and so on? Yeah, so the prioritization of COVID vaccine um, is really needed, as we all know, because of the short supply of vaccines as these vaccines initially launch and roll out. So VA did prioritize based on um, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's criteria, which look at risk. So um, risk of either transmitting COVID, um, getting it, getting really sick from it and, and uh, such. So we in VA aligned with CDC's criteria to put our healthcare personnel and our veterans who are um, living in long-term care facilities as top priority. And when vaccine was authorized in December, went ahead and offered vaccine to those populations. And since then we have really followed along with CDC's risk criteria to offer vaccine to our oldest veterans. Um, and then to keep on working through um, as we get supply to veterans um, who are in additional ages and additional um, ones who have medical risk factors for severe COVID. You mentioned the 250,000 of these uh, vaccines you've administered to, to your staff. Do you have a sense of how many eligible employees are taking the vaccine versus declining? We're seeing some numbers that are, are quite frankly, a little troubling in the private sector. Yeah, so what we did before this all started with the vaccination effort is to um, pull out from our employees um, who was uh, or could be considered an essential employee in veterans health. And so those are not only our frontline doctors, nurses and such, but also those who serve veterans in the facilities. It might be a clerk at the front desk who needs to um, you know, be uh, in the facility present. Um, it could be people who clean the rooms and nutrition and food services, et cetera. So we pulled all of those and called them essential employees. And I'm just really pleased to say that 68% of those employees have received a COVID vaccine to date. 
Dr. Fauci said this week, Dr. Kim, that when we get to April, early May, it should be pretty much open season. Anybody that wants a vaccine should be able to get one. Is that the timeline to which you're looking forward at VA, that as, as more vaccines become available, you'll get to a point where any client and uh, any patient and any provider that wants one, hasn't gotten one yet, will be able to do it? Absolutely. I saw that um, uh, Dr. Fauci had um, talked about that timeline to have a lot more vaccine available in April and even May, and I was just thrilled. Um, in VA, we will definitely be looking forward to that. That is right around the corner. Um, we get our supply um, in alignment with our proportion of our population, um, you know, compared to the U.S. population. So I think as the whole U.S. supply increases, I anticipate VA supply will increase dramatically as well. And that's great news for our staff and veterans to have a lot more open access to vaccine along with the U.S. population. I want to go to logistics for a moment, if I, if I could, because we're seeing some issues in some states where they're struggling to get the vaccine out for the supplies even that they do have. What do you think was the thing that you did at VA early on that allowed you to get the vaccine out to the, to the degree of success that you've had? Yeah, so what we did last fall was as soon as we learned that COVID vaccines were on the horizon for later that year, we started planning. And so um, we had some requirements from CDC. We knew that there would be a need for special freezers potentially for some vaccines and even regular freezers. We made sure we stocked up and uh, had those freezers ordered and delivered before vaccine became available. And then we really worked hand in hand with the frontline decision makers and clinicians in our hospitals and facilities to let them know what was coming so they could start to plan. We have a, a national integrated health system. And so we were able to provide guidance from a national level, but we told people um, in your hospitals and clinics, start planning. And so I think it just was a lot of careful planning and, and attention to what was coming that led to our success. Given that you had that infrastructure in place already, and given the fact that uh, some of the vaccines on the horizon not only don't appear to need the deep freezing that the early ones did, but I believe the Johnson & Johnson vaccine doesn't require refrigeration at all. Does, do you think that your growth in the coming months will be exponential and not linear as far as the number that you'll be able to administer? I sure hope that the VA's vaccination growth will be exponential. That would be great for our veterans and our staff and great for our country as we're all waiting for herd immunity to get us uh, out of this pandemic. So um, certainly as Johnson Johnson's product gets um, reviewed by the FDA and potentially authorized as well, it's a great option because it's much easier to store. It's one dose, which I know a lot of people will like, and uh, it'll be a great additional option uh, in addition to the um, more doses that are coming for the Pfizer Moderna product. So I, I sure hope that um, having all of these options on the table will, will help us vaccinate more people and, and again, get us through this pandemic. We have less than a minute left. I know the science is not settled on whether we will need this on an ongoing or yearly basis like we do with a regular flu shot, but are you planning for that possibility now? Does that play into the way that you're figuring logistics moving forward, Dr. Kim? Yeah, I think that we are definitely thinking as the science involves that the COVID vaccines may be a yearly or kind of regular type of vaccine. So we're penciling that in actually, um, you know, more to come. But I think we definitely know that could be a possibility for us. Dr. Kim, thanks very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Up next, securing the digital workforce. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a new playbook for using the newest tech tools safely. You're watching ABC7.
Welcome back. The new Digital Worker Identity Playbook from the General Services Administration gives every agency guidance for using cutting-edge digital tools safely. The playbook has a three-step process to help agencies manage their digital staffs. Alex Cohen's Director of Emerging Technologies at the Office of Government-Wide Policy at GSA. Alex, welcome. It's great to have you on the program. What is a digital workforce that you're referring to in this playbook? Hi, Francis. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, a digital worker is a piece of software that executes a business process, often powered by artificial intelligence, although that's not explicitly a requirement, but that runs on a government network and does a action uh, on behalf of either the agency or an individual. So these are software tools that are helping to solve things in government and make the government operate better. Name check for Gerard Bedoric, the uh, chief financial officer at GSA, who's really been leading the uh, robotic process automation effort across government. That's one element he has told me of the digital workforce. What challenges, what problems did agencies bring to you or other units inside GSA that caused you to want to develop this playbook? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so this project actually got started by the CIO Council. Uh, they asked us, there was a OMB memo that came out uh, that said that agencies needed to make sure that any digital workers on their network were identifiable and trackable and auditable. And so the CIO Council tasked our team at GSA to figure out how to best do this. Um, we've seen an absolute explosion of AI across both uh, GSA and other agencies as well. Uh, everything from tools that review contracts and propose clauses using natural language processing to tools to sort through images using machine learning. Um, and so with all these tools coming online, there was a need to be able to figure out how to identify these things from a network perspective. And so that was really the, the genesis of this project. Um, and then we worked with the uh, identity and access teams at GSA and uh, other AI practitioners in the RPA community, as you mentioned, uh, to try and put together best practices and, and which resulted in the creation of this playbook. I mentioned the three steps at the beginning of our conversation, uh, Alex, and we don't have time to get into great detail on all three. The first one's identifying impact or risk. Second's requirements to create and govern an identity. And third is tracking accountability and auditing. How did you narrow down all the possibilities to those being the big three plays that people need to follow? Sure. So our office is relatively new. Uh, we were only created about a year ago to be very proactive in, in policy making. Um, and so what we did uh, as a new office, we, we reached out and coordinated with lots of different folks and did interviews and, and spoke to them. And we followed uh, basically how and we did a lot of research on how NIST put together their checklist for kind of the levels of ATOs and how you know, different scoring rubrics worked. And that resulted in, and so the three levels that you're, you're talking about, the first one is to assess the uh, potential adverse impact of a given AI or a given, excuse me, digital worker. Uh, and so this is things like, is it running um, with monitoring or without monitoring? Uh, what are the outputs going to be used for? Um, and we kind of, from that, we created uh, four different layers ranging from, you know, negligible, this thing is, you know, it's, it's a tool running on someone's desktop and it helps them sort through information to, you know, this potentially has some risks to the agency in terms of perhaps if it's a contract review tool and it makes a mistake on a contract, you know, that, that could have an adverse, uh, a more serious and severe uh, impact. And so that was that first step where we created uh, six different elements to help score different digital workers to identify the kind of the worst possible case. Um, and, that, and then from there, you use that for the next two phases, which are 
figuring out which fields need to actually be populated and then actually creating the identity for that given digital worker. We just have a couple of minutes left, Alex, and I want to go to that third step, tracking accountability and auditing, because it strikes me the, the message that I read between the lines in this playbook was, that's where you measure the success of what you've done in addition to make, making sure that you've done it securely. Is that a fair read on my part? Yeah, I, I think it is. So as an, an office on emerging tech, you know, we were created to be more pro, make, help make uh, proactive policy. And so some of the things that we did is, um, you know, these bots are being put on networks today and they're kind of being shoehorned into existing identity management systems, right? So we've seen things like Alice Bot and Bob Bot, where they use Alice as the first name and Bot as the last name. Clearly that's not right. It's not a human being. It doesn't have a first and last name, but that's how the identity managements are set up. You know, something as simple as an is bot flag in the identity management system doesn't exist currently. And so we propose, you know, a series of additional fields that can be added to help track these things. And at the easiest level, it's simply an is bot flag. At the more complicated levels, we have things like the IP ranges that it's operating on and, and from and accessing. Uh, and as well as things like who is the responsible individual that if this thing is misbehaving, you can go contact that person. And so that's sort of the sponsor and, and the owner of the AI or the digital worker. We have so that. Sorry, go ahead. No, I'm just uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but we only have about a minute left. And I wanted to mention we have a link to the playbook at govmatters.tv slash resources. Alex, is this a living document? Is this something that as more agencies become involved, more organizations become involved, share feedback, share experiences, that this will evolve over time? Uh, I'm sure it will evolve. Uh, this was the first step. Our office is more or less completed with it. However, there's an amazing identity and access credentialing management office at GSA. Uh, that we envision will kind of take ownership of this and help kind of grow and, and make sure that this is a, a tool that is useful to other agencies. Alex Cohen, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you on the program. Thank you so much. Up next, the number one story of the week, $9 billion disappears from the government's IT future. Straight ahead on Government Matters, two former federal CIOs on the options ahead. You're watching ABC7. Welcome back. Now, the number one story of the week, the Technology Modernization Fund won't get a $9 billion boost that was in the original version of the pandemic relief bill. It is not the first time the fund has been targeted for cuts from Congress. Karen Evans and Mark Foreman are former eGov administrators at the Office of Management and Budget. Karen was most recently CIO at the Department of Homeland Security. Welcome, friends. It's good to see both of you. Karen, I start with you. Does this make a difference as to how agencies should plan strategies moving forward for IT modernization and digital transformation? I think it's a factor that they need to include as they go forward because it was an opportunity. For example, uh, the CBP at DHS actually has a project, a modernization project that's critical to them that's being funded from the TMF and it was a huge huge thing for them to put together the business case and i was fortunate enough to be there when the award happened and when they did their first presentation back to the board and so it really it really does help a department or an agency ease some of that burden outside of the regular budget process so i am a little disappointed it's not included uh, Mark, welcome. It's good to see you again. You had a terrific conversation this week with my former colleague, Jason Miller at Federal News Network, talking about where to find money. There's still money there to find if you know where to look. 
Where do agencies not look that they should to try to find money for modernization and transformation? Well, thanks, Francis. It's good to be here. Good to be here with Karen as well. Uh, the uh, the budget is where where you look. You know, just to, to get a feel for the, the issue that uh, you're hitting on, the TMF requires a monetary payback, and uh, the ROI oftentimes from these programs needs to be seen in terms of improvement in the mission, improvement in customer service. And so in the most recent A11, uh, pre the, the December one, this would be the, uh, the July 2020 version of the budgeting document. I think there are three paths that are clearly laid out. And I think the, the Biden administration will embrace those three paths. One is the traditional path where you make the business case based on closing a performance gap in an agency program. The second is in the evidence-based policymaking arena. And I, I think we need to see greater collaboration between the CIOs and the people responsible for performance improvement. These are performance improvement officers or these uh, policy and analysis groups that are now in most of the agencies. And the third area is in the 21st century idea implementation. The agencies are starting to get their feedback from their customers on where the customer experience gaps lie. So those are three big areas. I think A11, and, and I'm very hopeful the Biden administration will create those paths for the funding request to come into OMB this year. Karen, the last time you were on the program, you were on with the CFO at DHS at the time, Troy Edgar, and you talked about that exact thing that Mark just described, and that is uh, tightening the collaboration with the CIO of an organization and the performance improvement, the performance measurement people in an organization. What does that look like in an ideal form inside an agency and where do you think gaps are, gaps exist today in some organizations to tighten that? Well, based on the experience that I had at DHS and also at DOE, the chief performance officer and a lot of the data evidence pieces like the agency performance goals and the cross-agency performance goals, um, that whole process that's being managed is usually managed out of the CFO's office. So that partnership is really critical. Um, and then, of course, you have the program leads like Mark is talking about. But I think the other area of opportunity where this integration really has to happen and the partnership is how the agencies have rolled out the position of the chief data officer. For example, at DHS, the chief data officer is one of the key directorates with the chief information officer. And some of the other departments and agencies, that's not necessarily the case. And so Mark is making a great point about that integration, especially as it relates to program performance, really has to happen so that you can justify the investments in your mission budgets, or for that matter, justifying the investments in infrastructure, right? The whole network modernization, the whole thing that the department has to do, that integration has to happen so that you can make the business case going forward to improve the network operations. Because um, you can see that we're gonna be in this hybrid environment for a long time. Mark, the three of us and, and all of us individually have talked to each other about the integration of the CXOs. Fatar has driven that. A number of other factors have driven that. But as I hear you and Karen talk about these relationships, I wonder if that CIO-CFO relationship isn't maybe a first among equals, that maybe it's not more important than the other ones, but maybe it is a little more important than the other relationships in the C-suite. Is that a fair observation? 
I think it is in, in one aspect, uh, the controlling money and associating those, mo those monies and investments going forward is a pretty important aspect in modernization. You, you know, 85 to 90% of the IT budget is on operations and maintenance, and you can tweak that at the edges. But when we're talking about modernization, we're talking about making an investment in the future of an agency. And the CIO brings that technology expertise the CFO brings that budget governance, and under FATARA, they have to work together on that. But the, the third leg of that stool is the program office that needs the modernization. So uh, I really believe it's, it's a three-party function here. Mark Foreman, Karen Evans, you're both superstars. It's great to have you on the program. Thank you for Thank inviting you. It's me. Great have to a great see you weekend. Both. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every one of our shows when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. We're back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.